Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Today we have an amazing founder, you know, that has been involved with a, a couple of companies, you know, and very successfully so. You know, we're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear around building, scaling, financing, and all the stuff that you can think, like, for example, like building resilience, camels versus unicorns, which I think is very interesting. I'm thinking about the way to, to be and to have your team, you know, and the culture. Uh, also, raising capital, dealing with no's. I mean, in this case, he has 60 no's during the seed round. And then also the fast follower feeling and how that ended up, you know, in a really interesting, you know, transaction. But, hey, without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jonathan Adire. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So, born in Israel, in Startup Nation. So, give us a walk through <laughs> memory lane. How is life growing up? <laughs> Yeah, listen, I uh, I grew I was born here in the 80s, uh, son to um, immigrants, you know, more even more likely to say uh, refugees. Uh, my father came here from Iran. My mother in the in the early 50s uh, uh, came here after the expulsion of the Jewish community of, of uh, Baghdad, Iraq. So very unique kind of, you know, background, uh, youngest of four boys, which was a formative experience uh, in our household. My dad. Just recently turned 80 a couple of years ago, closed his uh, garage. So I've seen an entrepreneur up close. But I have to say the education, being in a first generation uh, after immigration was education first and risk maybe for the grandchildren. So I'm a bit of, a, of, of less of a kind of classic Israeli entrepreneur that grows from tech into building a company. Uh, my story, you know, led me into public service. I've spent the first 15 years of my life in public service, culminating as a diplomatic advisor and the young uh, and a CTO to one of the founding fathers of the country, President Shimon Peres. Um, you know, being a CTO to a president who was 86 years old when I was 26, um, and you know, kind of witnessing and working statescraft from the White House in Washington, Bush and Obama administration, all the way down to Brazil, Argentina, South Korea, and others. Getting a sense of you know how the sausage factory, if you will, of, of global politics is built at that age with that level of responsibility uh, made me kind of understand the problem area of what the world is is you know kind of suffering and which areas uh, really need a solution. And to your point, uh, after year one of working for the president, I was sent to participate in a training uh, program in, hosted in a NASA facility in Mountain View called Singularity University, the, uh, the experiment class, if you will, uh, in 2009, uh, where you know, I was fortunate to switch my mindset from just not just the problem area, but the exponential way in which the second decade of the 21st century is most likely to behave. and had a really profound switch of mindset, understanding how you know, to think exponentially on tech, but also to try and predict for the purposes of building a company, right, and changing the world, when prices are going to decline such that you need less and less capital to create effective disruption. Uh, I've seen that up close as I played a, uh, a role in the founding team of getaround.com, which was born out of that uh, program. 
And we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about that in 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 just a little bit because there's a little bit here that uh, you know that we need to unpack, you know, Jonathan. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so, so yeah. let's 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 rewind back a little bit, you know, now, and let's go to that time where you were 14. You got your undergrad at 14. I mean, that's that's pretty unbelievable. I I haven't heard that often. So, uh, so how was that for you? Look, honestly, um, I now have four kids myself and I, I see how sort of I treat my youngest daughter. She's now three years old. So I have a lot of uh, huge respect and understanding for my mom who um, kind of, you know, for me, allowed for maximum freedom and kind of do whatever you want, right? As long as you're like in the lane of being a good person and um, and having the morals in the right place. So the real story is I just had a great teacher in the public school in Israel when I was 14 who, who called my mom and said, listen, the kid is great. Not, not a straight A student, but very, very curious, which is true. I was never a straight A student. Um, you may want to send him over this summer to the Open University to try out a course. And luckily for me, my mom was like, okay, why not? Do you want to do that? And for me, it sounded like fun, you know, like, why not? And luckily for me, the university uh, chose a course um, that was led by Daniel Kahneman, um, you know, the subsequently, you know, a Nobel laureate. And this was a course about statistics and, you know, behavioral economics. And I was blown away as a 14-year-old of kind of understanding you can make sense of human behavior in, in, in such a methodical way. And it kind of opened my eyes into kind of, you know, the more I, I uh, deepen my understanding in this field, the better I understand the world, I can kind of you know, try to build systems, which for me was always, you know, interesting. So I kind of spent the next three years deep diving into statistics and social sciences and, and really trying to build an image for, for of the world for myself. And listen, I was, I was, I grew up in Israel in, in a, a Cambrian explosion era, right? 96 to 99, uh, Oslo agreements, peace with the Palestinians, you know, kind of year after year, um, you know, we went from one channel on the TV to like 200. We went from, you know, like um, three uh, radio stations to 25, you know, fully Americanized in the good sense of the word, right? Like open to the West. Um, the high-tech industry started booming. Um, so it was a very hopeful, you know, period where you would like work hard and, and believe in, in this massive future opportunities, uh, and so for me, taking that university kind of experience at an early age was all about the pace of the new world, right? Right? Like, you know, uh, the, 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 the end of history, as Fukuyama used to call it, right? So um, it, it was never about, you know, finishing the, the, the degree. It was more about kind of just gulping information that, that made me see the world in a different way and, and really made me feel capable in, in many ways of making change. Now, for you, you know, after this, obviously, you know, like you ended up uh, going to uh, the army like uh, you guys do there in, in Israel. <clears throat> and you were serving there as a negotiator for the Red Cross. Uh, but basically after this, you know, after doing the couple of years there that you need to do, then you decided to pack the bags and come to New York. So how was the experience, too, of being here, seeing the American dream, you know, in New York City, you know, all of that stuff for you? So listen, three things that I sort of parted ways with by living by myself at 23, 24 in New York, um, which, which were really formative for my journey going forward. I think first and foremost, um, again, being, being born into the family that I was born into, being the youngest of four boys, there were a lot of kind of inhibiting factors that I never realized were inhibiting, right? I never 
I was always the youngest of four. I was always, you know, kind of within that sphere of influence of my parents and the family, which was very tight knit. So being out there helped me kind of build my own vision of the world and expose myself to different kind of thought processes, um, uh, you know, that New York excels at, right? Be it culture, museums, art, music, and so on. The second layer was, you know, what you write it, what you kind of write about and talk about a lot and cover at the podcast, which was kind of like the networking, right? Understanding that there are a lot of other people who dream of changing the world or impacting and making it different. And you're kind of not alone, right? It's kind of the long tail effect, right? In Israel, you're, you're one in a small group of people, whereas in New York, you, you find these people aspiring to make a, to make a difference. And, and I think the third was, again, to, to you know, I spent the, my years in New York and, and doing research were, were also formative in tech. These were the early days of Netflix going digital. These were the early days of, you know, the iPhone being launched and, and BlackBerry being used, you know, by almost everybody, right? So starting to see the productivity gains that exponential technology starts to deliver, those three things really, I think, kind of, you know, made me who I am today. And I'll say one small thing, which we may want to talk about later. It also made me uh, mature to meet the love of my life and appreciate who she is as a person. We are, we're together for 15 years now. I have four kids. I think my years in New York, and she's from Switzerland, um, and kind of this international experience and kind of kind of learning things about myself by living alone in New York made me mature into the the man I, I was when I met her. And, and that was also a very you know, important part of the journey. Um, healthy IO, as is Get Around, as other things that, I, that I'm focused on in my life is a partnership between my wife and I. And, and that period in New York really cemented my ability to, to see relationships that way and build that, that trust, that friendship um, that, that went through you know, 15 years, uh, four children, and me building the company, her building her, uh, initiatives here in Israel. So that's how formative New York was for me. That's amazing. Now, uh, at one point, you know, you received the uh, call for the opportunity of joining President Paris as the first CTO there. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing, you know, the opportunity. So so how did that come about? So, um, you know, as, as other things in life, right, some of it has, uh, you know, has to do with serendipity. The 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 story is that I met, uh, I was kind of thinking, you know, what, what's my next play, right? I had a master's degree, but I did not have a profession, so to speak, right? I was 25, 26. And a colleague of mine said, hey, you may want to go to McKinsey, which sounded like a good idea, but I didn't have an MBA and I had to do like the off-cycle off recruit. And so I met a couple of very, uh, very serious kind of folks in the industry in New York, you know, through networking. And one of them gave me a book. Uh, and he said, you got to read this as you go through the case study kind of story. And the book was called Expert Political Judgment. How good is it? How can you know? The story of the fox and the hedgehog by Philip Tetlock, a, a famous kind of um, decision-making researcher from, from Berkeley. To keep it short, the book basically tells you the guy asked for predictions from hundreds of uh, experts for, tw for 20 years, Right. And he opens the box and, and see that none of these experts had any predictive value better than a coin toss, right? The entire book is about like, you know, what makes people different? If I, if I slice them by economy experts and infrastructure experts, am I going to get any variance? The answer is no. And at some point he says, there's a, an Isaiah Berlin division between foxes and hedgehogs, right? Experts who are foxes who kind of 
scavenge around the woods. They know a little bit about everything. You know what we, you and I would call an entrepreneur, right? Like people who kind of get shit done, but they don't know everything about a specific field, whereas the hedgehogs do. But every slight change in the ecosystem can kill a hedgehog, whereas if the ecosystem changes, many times the fox would survive. The long story short of it, I come back to Israel, colleague of mine uh, was in the government, um, kind of put my name in the, in the hat. When the president was looking for a chief of staff, I came to do like seven steps of interviews. I go to the interview with the president. Remember, the guy's 86 years old. And he kind of says, uh, his opening question is, what book are you reading right now? So I said, ah, well, it's this thing called The Fox and the Hedgehog. And I tell him the story I just told you. And he said, how does that relate to, you know, what you think I should do with the presidency? So I said, you know, I look at you, Mr. President, you're a founding father of the state of Israel. You've had 60 years in politics. You've always been a fox and not a hedgehog right? And you've always kind of mastered the understanding where the ecosystem is changing, you know, two steps ahead of that and led Israel there. And I think that distinction is sort of where you want to also go as a president. So he, he kind of interjected. And just to give you a sense of the, of the, you know, immense, unique nature of the situation, he tells me, I've actually had an argument with Isaiah Berlin in 1956 about this distinction between foxes and hedgehogs. <laughs> so you kind of like, it's good I'm not a bullshitter. And I told an honest truth of like reading the book and you know how I got it. Anyway, the conversation ensued. It was an incredible conversation. I went home. I got a call the next day saying, listen, the president was very impressed with what you had to say, but you didn't get the job. You're not the kind of guy that can be a chief of staff. And, you know, in hindsight, I was too young and too kind of, I didn't have the, 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 you know, the rigor and the strength of being the guy next to the door, right? The gatekeeper, if you will, which is what you got to do when you're a chief of staff. But then two weeks later, I get a call from the director general says, listen, the president really loved your idea. He's been thinking about how tech and diplomacy kind of converge. Would you come and, and kind of, you know, spend at least a year as the CTO for the president and help him work diplomacy and, and tech together? And then she gave me like a stern warning. She said, listen, I've been working with him for 20 years. There's 60 years between you. The first three months will determine whether or not you gain his trust or not. And if you don't, you're not going to survive a year if you do. I think you're going to spend many, many years here with the president. That's actually, you know, how it unfolded. I was really privileged to work with him, you know, visiting 60 heads of state from the White House to Brazil, to Korea, to Japan, to Germany, working with, you know, the World Economic Forum. And really, I think he pioneered this idea of where tech and diplomacy uh, work together. We've subsequently seen the British prime minister bring in a CTO and, and President Obama bring in a CTO and President Merkel. Chancellor Merkel during a CTO. I think he was the first one. Um, and as an 86-year-old, the, the way he fundamentally got the transformative power of tech, right, into our psyche, into who we are in the second decade of the 21st century, in which he would have turned to be 100 years old, by the way, um, was, was second to none, really. And, and it was, I think you're right, it was, it was a, an honest privilege to have served my country and also to have served under a Nobel Prize winner, a man who, you know, a man of vision, a man of peace, who, who has really helped shape, you know, better Middle East. So in your case, you know, eventually um, you find yourself in the U.S. once again, you know, at Singularity University. So what would you say that triggered, you know, that, uh, that experience, you know, going there? And then also how did the whole thing of entering the venture world, you know, be a, the idea of get around? You know, how, how did this all, whole thing unfold? So, you know, the, the story of the, uh, the inaugural class of, uh, of Singularity was actually pretty interesting. Um, President Perez met Ray Kurzweil a few years, a few years earlier. Um, 
And Ray uh, ignited the thinking process with President Paris around this notion of, of exponential curves and the law of accelerated returns. And so when I got to the office, the president had a huge library. He came up to me and gave me Ray's book and said, you know, one of the fundamental things I want you to focus on is assume exponentiality as you try to understand the relationship between tech and diplomacy in the next decade. And that's what I did. And then that was May 2008. Fast forward six, nine months later, Ray and, and the NASA director announced we're going to do an inaugural class, an experimental class, and we're going to try teach, teaching people for 90 days in a NASA facility about this kind of methodology of thinking. So I see that and I go, I, I go to the president. I say, would you be willing to you know, recommend me going and support the application? I will be gone for, for 90 days, but I promise I'll be back and I'll be 10x better than what I did. And he, he was like, wow, that sounds like, you know, that sounds like a, a great sandbox. I'd love to go myself, but yeah, for sure. And so in many ways, it was Shimon Peres who, who kind of led my thinking around, around that and exploring this NASA singularity uh, training opportunity. And, and <clears throat> you know, I ended up, as you said, going, which was a life-changing experience. Um, you know, it, it took a while. Remember, this is 2009, right? We're still paying like, 60 cents per SMS, bandwidth is expensive, there's no cloud yet, smartphones are like coming out, Nokia is still a market dominant force, you know, it's like, um, and, and so I go there and it took a month, you know, out of the three months, it took a month to kind of switch, right? But once it clicked, as, as team members of, of that class, we all started kind of having net crazy whiteboard sessions to 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Oh, what do you do with water? What do you do with energy? What do you do in space? Like if you think exponentially, what's going to happen in 2014, 13, and so on? One of these exercises uh, was called uh, uh, the ITG. Uh, Sam, Jessica, um, and some other folks, uh, Sarah, were, were sitting in the dorm saying, oh, well, the, in like, Five, six years, we just came back. I don't know if you remember Sebastian Troon. He, back then, had a car called Stanley, which was the kind of first autonomous car uh, to win the, the um, DARPA challenge, right? Uh, out of Stanford University. And we went to meet him, and we were like, whoa. So, like, five, six years out, if, if it's going to all be exponential, the, the sensors, the battery, this, that, the other, we may have, you know, a degree of autonom autonomous driving. So ITG was like the concept between Sam, Jessica, Sarah, myself, um, Bentley, the kind of founding team at, at, at GetAround uh, of an intelligent transportation grid. I hope I'm remembering it right. I have the, I have the, the seed funding deck on my computer. Um, and the notion was, well, if, it's, if indeed there's ITG, if like cars are getting smarter, yeah, you can get better utility. And then Sam and a couple other folks went and wrote an algorithm trying to, they downloaded the, the, the um, trans, transportation data from the U.S. Um, Ministry of Transportation, Secretary of Transportation. And they came up with uh, kind of an algorithm, kind of like TCPIP, if cars were just like units of routing information and all cars would have been fully autonomous, you'd need about a third of the cars on the road to satisfy everybody's transportation needs without any compromise. So if all the cars are being shared and they're autonomous, a third of the cars would get everybody to their destination, you know, and so on. 
and you know, think about it, two thirds of the cars are, are superfluous, right? So the, the pollution, the traffic and so on. So that was the insight from one of those kind of whiteboard sessions. Then a couple of days later, we started thinking about Zipcar. They IPO'd at a billion dollars. Remember, a billion dollar IPO in 29, in 29, 2009 was a big deal. So we downloaded the S1. And guess what? They had like less than like 20,000 cars in circulation, if I remember correctly, that drove a billion dollar valuation. The third angle of get around was Netflix, was sorry, Airbnb. So you started seeing this behavioral change where people would be willing to rent a room in their home. It was before Airbnb would rent entire apartments, right? When they would literally rent rooms. You're like, well, if people are willing to rent rooms in their homes and Zipcar is so big when people are willing and, and there's a need to rent cars, right? Like in, in downtown areas. And we understand that the future of the grid transportation-wise is going to be autonomous, exponentially developing. Why not make an Airbnb for parking cars, right? Like why not, allow, the same way we allow people to rent a room in their house, why not allow them to rent their car, right, when they don't use it? And then the whole thing started rolling because get around, we figured out get around. We had a funny, I guess I have the computer, we produced this funny video with Sam starring uh, with like, you know, looking at a parking lot and like all the cars are losing value. And then we like made cars, you know, kind of gain value. And the notion was, well, if you share your own car, again, like Airbnb, you're going to actually gain money. You turn your car from a money, from a depreciating asset to an appreciating asset. And then, you know, went out with a lot of guidance from the folks at Singularity, went out to, uh, to um, San Francisco and met, you know, folks who'd write your half million dollar check seed you know, circa 2009, that was more or less the, you probably remember, that was kind of like the standard. Yeah. And, you know, so then we had to figure, so we ended up, you know, kind of figuring out who's the most right. We finished the program, Sam, and we had a pact. Whoever isn't transitioning into, because Sam was from Canada, so was Jessica, and kind of, I knew I'm going back to serve the president, right? So we agreed, in order to raise the, the money, we had a good couple of leads, but no one would share, you know, would split the founder's equity by six and build a company. That doesn't work. That's why companies usually outside of Y Combinator or places that are really designed for that, they don't survive, right? So we basically decided whoever isn't integrating into Silicon Valley to build a company and be the man in the arena is going to have nice shares and is going to have an advisory board and, and is going to contribute, but is not going to share the equity pie in full, Right. And I think that document, which I helped kind of forge as a negotiator, I was pretty good at kind of figuring out, you know, how to, I think that document kind of, kind of allowed for us to go out there, raise proper capital and allowed for Sam, Jessica, Elliot, and the founding team that, that, and Sarah and the folks who really immigrated to the Valley, um, to build the company and make it, make it, you know, what it was. And, and, and you know, in a couple of years ago, becoming a, a NASDAQ listed company, um, and really a pioneer in the field. Right in many ways, and there are a lot of similarities, by the way, between the thinking process behind get around and healthy. Happy to kind of go back to that later. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process, and it's very hard. And already doing your business alone. It's super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either 
knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. And obviously the, the rest is history because the company, you know, got the billion dollar valuation, you know, unicorn status, like you were saying, you know, went public. I mean, really incredible. Now, in your case, you know, as you were saying, you ended up going back to Israel. And uh, going back to Israel, obviously, you know, one thing led to the next and you end up launching your baby, Healthy. So uh, <laughs> how, were, how were the sequence of events, you know, for you to bring Healthy to life? What, what do you think needed to happen there? So it, this was a combination of two things. First, an understanding um, that, you know, I kind of had an inertia in leading my career, right? Since that day on, when my teacher, when I was 14, kind of, you know, gave me that push things were kind of like one thing led to another. When I came back from NASA and Gedron was born and spending time with Sam and Jessica remotely once per quarter, I realized that, you know, for the first time in my life, that I could actually make that change myself as well, right? And I started kind of moving from, uh, uh, if you will, public service mindset of I'm going to put my talent and my time and my career in serving the public into I can serve the public by being an entrepreneur. And that was a major shift. And so for me, the decision to become an entrepreneur was kind of top-down, public service-driven, right? In a very perverse way, right? I saw my entrepreneurial journey as one of public service. So that was very clear for me. I'm going to make this turn. The second piece was, well, if it's public service that I'm kind of, if I want to really make a difference in the world for the better, I can't, like there's very important kind of context to which company I'm trying to, to form, right? So different fields didn't make sense. The one that I honed into was healthcare. And you got to understand in Israel, healthcare is kind of like a time machine for the world. This is a country with universal healthcare, very competitive uh, um, um, delivery organizations that are tax funded, but, but operate like private entities. The company has had a digital healthcare infrastructure from 2002, including applications. Basically, when we go to the doctor, we have all our health records from 2002, from the you know, blood test to MRI to CT scans. There's a massive big data set here that predicts diseases, that predicts uh, um, uh, correlations of, of medication. And it, it, it's not by chance that Israel is, is overrepresented in the medical innovation space, a lot of drugs discovered, a lot of lives saved around the world, including with countries with whom we have no diplomatic relations, you know, kind of really a lot of medicine has come out of Israel because of that. 
So that was kind of my general direction. I started plotting exponential um, curves, if you will, that like we did with Getaround. Try to say, well, this is 2012, 13. Where are the exponentials going? I had six of them on my final kind of whiteboard. One was smartphone camera, clear exponential. It was clear that with every generation, it's getting twice, three times, four times better. The second was smartphone batteries, because if you have a great camera, but every time you take a picture, the battery diminishes, you know, you don't get anything. The third was bandwidth. You started seeing, you know, bandwidth becoming, you know, 3G, 4G was kind of being thought of. Um, then uh, storage on the cloud, computation on the cloud, and then uh, computation on the phone. All six, remarkably, showing their path towards the knee of the curve. And all six also indicating massive price decline. So if you will, the genesis of LTIO was a very good prediction of deflationary tech, right? Exponential growth, but declining prices. So that was kind of where I, where I started focusing. So digital health, it's going gonna, it's gonna to really grow because if bandwidth goes to zero and is expanded, if, if cloud computation is zero, and you know the, the applications are huge from like, um, uh, radiography interpretation via AI on the cloud, all the way to uh, wearables and so on and so forth. And you know, I was, I was, I was kind of going somewhere with that. I had a thesis, and again, top down, right? So, public service type company, healthcare, you know, very strong added value, and then looking at that exponential map, I was looking for the idea of the of the kind of product one and the vision. And then my parents uh, turned, my mom turned 70, my dad turned 70, and they started kind of traveling the world. They went to China. Um, and I get a call from, actually, that's not true. My, my oldest brother gets a call, who is always my dad's conciliary, right? The first one to get a call is my, first, my oldest brother. Saying, you know, you know, mom fell off kind of a small hill. Uh, she lost consciousness. We, we took her to the hospital. They were in some small town uh, in China. And she couldn't breathe for a while. She was unconscious. She's okay now. Uh, they just did a CT scan. She, she has broken ribs. Then we're going to fly in two days when she stabilizes to Hong Kong to, you know, continue checkups. And so, you know, I asked my brother to let me speak to kind of convene us all. Luckily, luckily, Andrew, before they flew, they bought an iPhone 4 because they used to have like stupid phones before. And I told my dad, listen, what's going on? Why are you al alerted? So he said, listen... <laughs> I've seen injured people in my life. It doesn't look like she has only broken ribs. It's very hard for her to breathe. And she's a bit disoriented. So I said, listen, dad, take pictures of the CT scan with your smartphone. And he actually didn't know how to operate an email. He used to call it an ML. He thought when we said email, it's ML. So we had to guide him into how to send it. It was pre-WhatsApp, pre-instant you know, instant messaging. Obviously, no Facebook account and whatnot. And he sent me four pictures of that CT scan. And I took the, the images and I had, you know, on my speed dial, because President Perez, in, you know, when we traveled with him, he was 91 years old when I finished my formal role. We had um, a very senior trauma doctor fly with us, just in case, right? So I had all four best Israeli trauma doctors on my speed dial. I sent all four of them a text message saying, listen, can I get your advice? This and this and that happened. I get an immediate call, literally with two minutes, uh, with one of the best of them saying, that's what I said, do you have the CT scan? I said, yes, send me by email. A minute later, he, he calls me back and says, listen, it's very clear. She has pneumothorax. She has a punctured lung. It's a big issue. It's going to be fine. But, you know, 
one of you guys needs to fly there. She needs to spend a week or 10 days on the ground until the whole thing kind of stabilizes. So what do you mean? They're going to fly her out in 24 hours to Hong Kong. There's no way she can't board a plane. Her lungs can collapse because of the air pressure differences oh, and no. so on. If she's not, if she doesn't have a medical uh, assistance on the plane. So, you know, I'm like, what, what are we going to do? Anyway, long story short, this kind of makeshift, lucky that my dad took the camera. He took the pictures. The bandwidth was still expensive, but he sent it our way. I had a, a doctor sort of at my disposal, if you will, that gave me a quick answer. Like anyone else could have taken two days to find the right doctor and she would have maybe died along, the, along that time. So we, 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 and by the way, that was the right distinction. She stayed there for about a week. One of my brothers flew out there and she flew medical evacuation from that small town uh, all the way to Israel and got really good treatment and she's fine and everything. But like I walked around for weeks on weeks saying, I, what cam like it clicked. I realized I have to do something with the camera. And, you know, later on when we passed our first FDA trial, the economist wrote a big piece about healthy IO and they called us the company that introduced the era of the medical selfie. And I couldn't articulate it that time, but, that was when the moment when the medical selfie was born was when I realized that if you can just send pictures around, there's, there's a massive medical value hidden, right, in those pictures, and it can save lives. And, you know, the, the kind of long for me is I, I realized that if I take that map of that deflationary tech prediction and I put it in the service of turning the smartphone camera to a clinical-grade medical device or deploying AI on the camera, we can change the lives of millions, if not billions of people. And that's the genesis of Healthy IO. I saw what a lot of other entrepreneurs saw in 2012, 13, 14, the genesis of digital healthcare. But whereas most, of, I would say there were three axes back then of entrepreneurs. One was wearables. Prices are going down. Let's make a watch and this and that. Fitbit was kind of the big player there. Um, the other piece was health IT, clever health IT, which I think did really well. And the third was, sorry to say, selling bullshit, buzzwords that, you know, there's going to be a white robe wearing AI that's going to rid us of cancer in 2016. And you saw Google failing that and some other big, big companies making bets in that direction. Ours was a fourth way, a unique way. Nobody believed in what we do. We were literally the only company back then to do that. Uh, was the camera and the AI, no dongle, no wearable, no connectivity. That's, that's what's going to deliver radical healthcare improvements. And obviously for this, you know, the rest is, is history. But uh, for Healthy, you guys have also raised uh, quite a bit of money. How much money have you guys raised to date? So listen, I think, I think the important piece to understand here was that learning lessons from getaround.com and, and, and Sam, who's been a phenomenal CEO and has had this... Um, intensity and the ability to go through like crisis in the early stages that I would talk to him and I was like, Sam, you're, you're incredible. Like you have stamina, mental stamina that I will never have. I always opted for long runways. So when I raised the seed round, I wanted $3 million. I knew I need to get from zero to a working prototype that can go through the FDA. And again, back in 2013, to raise $3 million for seed in digital healthcare in Israel, it's crazy, right? So it was three, then it was 12, then it was 20, then it was 70, and then now 50. So all in total, somewhere around 200 million uh, along the way. Um, 
including an acquisition, and I'm happy to share later. I mean, we ended up acquiring our biggest competitor from Silicon Valley, a company, you know, uh, for which I've lost a lot of hair and a lot of, you know, a lot, had a lot of sleepless nights. You know, competition is great and it drove us to be very sharp and I'm happy we won that competition and, and you know, both with the FDA as well as kind of strategically in terms of who, who managed to create a product that now has been used by a million people. So as you said in the beginning, getting it from an idea to success and to scale um, you know, was a journey that, that required roughly $200 million. Um, but very much piecemeal and very much kind of promise, deliver, raise capital, promise, deliver, raise capital. And that served us really well because there were many, many crises for this industry over the last decade. And I think our path of surviving and thriving during those crises had to do with how we raised capital in kind of increments after proof. And, and growth and growth and growth that built an impeccable uh, trust with our investors uh, that served us really well in times of crisis. So, I mean, you're alluding to it now, you know, like raising money, the transaction that you guys did, obviously vision plays a key role here. So if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of healthy is fully realized, what does that world look like? So I think maybe, maybe just to preamble that and say, you know, when I went to sleep, 12 years ago and had that vision of sort of building the medical selfie, it was also clear, I cannot sell this vision as a unicorn vision. The culture of this company, the dialogue with the investors, with our community of stakeholders would always be uh, one of, of um, resilience, of long-term view, um, of patience, and, and would not have the term disruption involved in it, right? We will not be selling pipe dreams to investors like Elizabeth Holmes did, which ended up also kind of injuring us as a company. We will be, if you will, kind of, we will be the camel when everybody else is a unicorn, right? And so from that perspective, the vision was always a long-term resilient company to survive and thrive through crises in healthcare. And ultimately, when I close my eyes now, and you know, I've transitioned a few weeks ago from the role of CEO to the role of president, happy to kind of share the thought behind that as well. But if everything works well, within a decade, what we have done to urine testing and what we're doing right now to chronic wound management, every medical process that is image-based, right, will end up on our color AI system and on our persuasion OS, transitioning into digital and FDA grade. That is psoriasis outbreaks. That is different. Um, you know, if you remember the microfluidics we used in, in, uh, during COVID, right? So the variety of those that can be read at home, and many of those are being developed right now with very high precision. Um, you know, the future of smartphone optics are not going to be limited only to cameras, right? The day is not far when we'll have a hyperspectral sensor on our phones. And imagine what you can do with that in healthcare if you have hyperspectral sensing on your phone. So basically, my dream is for healthy, you know, when it's 20, is to be that hub, that platform, where all vision-based medicine is driven from the home, from your smartphone at FDA grade. We've done it already twice. And if we succeed in the next two years and get to where we want to get in terms of profitability, there's, there's no stopping us in that sense. So then now that we're talking about the future, I want to talk about the past, but with a lens of reflection. Imagine you were to go to sleep tonight. I mean, not to sleep tonight, but let's say that you have the opportunity of dreaming too, right? And, and we're going to dream here together and we're going to be teletransporting ourselves to a moment in time that was in the past. But let's say, you know, that was putting you into a time machine 
and bringing you back in time, you know, perhaps, you know, to when you were moving to New York and now you were in Singularity University, this incredible, you know, innovation happening around you, discussing ideas, stuff like that. Let's say you were able to be right there on the spot and you will be able to say, hey, Jonathan, you're going to be launching companies. You know, it's you're going to be an entrepreneur. And being able to right there give your younger self one piece of advice, you know, before launching a business, what would you say that would be, Jonathan? Look, I think um, I was very fortunate before founding the business to get good advice from Sam and to learn from how Sam and Jessica and the team built get around um, a lot of the advice around runway, opting, uh, optimizing for, for investor quality and endurance over equity and, uh, and valuation. I got very good advice uh, and learnings from that. I think the you know 2024 Jonathan going back to 2009 Jonathan I think the main thing that I've learned um, is you know certain processes cannot be accelerated right even though we were patient and so on and so forth so certain processes cannot be accelerated and I think a kind of subset to that is um, the the forces that that would hinder your growth are not in place in plain sight, right? I have a big issue today with a lot of books and da 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 da. How to build a company? Da, da. Those are great, and they're they're a critical condition for you to be able to build stuff. But they are, but no, by no means there to really help you when shit really happens. Because when 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 the hardship happens, it happens from the unexpected angles of the, the industry or your field, right? You kind of, you get ready for the known unknowns. The books help you get ready for the known unknowns, the books, the, the mentors, the investors, the board. But reality has its way of like creating unknown unknowns, right? There's no textbook of what to do when you have a file with impeccable data with the FDA. You expect a result within six months and then COVID hits, right? Literally a once in a century pandemic that gets everything delayed and you have capital and you know you have burn rate and things are moving in this fda you can't move them because everybody's in state of pandemic right right so i think i would go back to yonatan for 2000 and say hey you got to plan for patience because you always got to think about the fact that you know unexpected stuff is going to happen and these are going to be some strategic things that can that can kill your company and they're going to come from a direction that you don't expect until a certain point where you're like, you know, predictable revenue. And that becomes, you know, that kind of challenge where good CEOs, experienced CEOs kind of run through the process as opposed to the nimbleness, the kind of, oh, shit, we just got punched in the face. What do we do? And in that sense, I had a group of five, six people who walked that path with me, one of which is sort of. Year one, really a late co-founder, if you will, Ron Zohar, chief product officer, without whom I, was, I would have never been able to undergo the crises and the kind of these surprises, right, that, that really threatened to kill the business, I think four or five times within a, within a 12-year period. And so that would be my advice. Like, there are killers for the business out there. They're not where you expect them to be. And you can't think that if you're surrounded by the best board and you read the best books and you're super intelligent, then, you know, you're going to be able to defend yourself from that. You'll be able to defend yourself from the known unknowns. That's for sure. The better you are, the better read you are, the better 
advice you get, you, you become in, more immune to the known unknowns. But like the stuff we went through in a decade, it's the stuff you kind of think happens in a century. The pandemic, a colossal criminal case in our, in our business, literally in our business, that you know had everybody lose trust in innovation in healthcare and diagnostics. That's the Theranos case. Um, the failure of north of a billion dollar invested in Google healthcare to deliver any significant change. Again, so like if Google can't do it, how can you guys do it, right? Like, and then ultimately the dynamics with the regulators and the reimbursements and so on. So, you know, it's a bit of a longer answer, but an unwinding, but a winding one. But really, this 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 stuff comes from from places you don't expect them to come, and you got to be patient and and have that reserve bandwidth and capital to, you know, the rainy day fund, if you will. Now, for the people that are listening, Jonathan, I would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Well, easy on Twitter, Jonathan Adiri. That's kind of where I spend most of my time these days. Less was never a big LinkedIn fan um, and, and had been out of Facebook, I think, for the last five years or so. I, I lost my password at some point and then I didn't, re, didn't kind of re, rejoin it. And I was like, hey, I don't really need this. But Twitter is where I learn. Uh, is where I kind of share insights and, and sort of that's that's the place to to interact. And, um, you know, I spend a lot of time in the U.S. And now my next episode here in Israel, Beyond Being President in Healthy I.O., is, is basically going back to innovation and entrepreneurship in the public sector. So I think that's the next big kind of thing. I'm very committed also to the future of Israel. And now having coming back into public sector sector with everything I've learned, um, is sort of, you know, where I'm going to spend most of my time in the next few years. Well, amazing. This was an absolutely incredible conversation, Jonathan, on behalf of everyone. You know, I want to thank you uh, for giving us the pleasure. And uh, it has been an honor to have you on the Dealmakers uh, show today, Jonathan. So thank you so much. Thank you. And it's a, it's a privilege to be part of the part of the team, part of the network now, uh, part of the community. And, and I want to thank you for building this community and being so helpful really in helping us avoid the, 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 the known unknowns, if you will. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.